Well, thank you for the uh, warm welcome, as always. Uh, it is just me. My wife and uh, daughter stayed back in Manhattan this morning. I am sorry I missed the beach party last night, but I gotta admit, I don't know if I could have uh, woke up on time, it sounds like, so it's probably a good thing that I, I stuck, stuck back. Uh, this morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. It's printed in your bulletin and is also on page 867 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of God. So I'm a big fan of uh, Jerry Seinfeld's show, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Uh, when our daughter Quincy was born last year, uh, my wife and I basically binge-watched uh, every episode on Netflix uh, in between feedings uh, when we had a spare moment. And last week, Netflix released a new season, so uh, we are very excited to jump back into that. Now, if you've never seen it, the premise is really simple, and the title kind of gives it away. Uh, Seinfeld drives around in what are usually exotic or rare cars with a fellow comedian, and they go get coffee. Uh, and when the two comedians get together, their conversations often turn, turn toward talking about some of their favorite jokes or uh, some of those legendary comics who inspired them. Uh, in one episode, Seinfeld talks about the great comedian George Carlin, uh, who probably don't reference a whole lot in church, but uh, Seinfeld remembers one of the jokes that Carlin told about a loaf of bread. And uh, Seinfeld turns into a bit of a philosopher, but he says that the joke gets at the human condition, that basically we're all terrible people, and if left to our own devices, uh, we only look out for ourselves. The joke goes like this. At home, when you make a sandwich, you open the loaf of bread, and you reach below the first two pieces of bread to get the really, really good bread. It's sort of a survival thing. Let my family have the rotten bread, I'm going to look out for numero uno. Now, if you're ever unlucky enough to be around me making sandwiches, you know that this is a reality for me. And we all might get a small laugh out of this, but uh, one of my favorite things about stand-up comedy is that so often through the jokes, the comics actually can shine a light on reality. Uh, by making us laugh, they can actually pry into our personal lives and often into our own society. And so if that's true, then uh, what does this joke about bread get at? 
I think Seinfeld kind of hinted at it, uh, but it gets at the notion that we're constantly looking out for ourselves, that if given the opportunity, we'll go right past the heels and the small slices of bread to grab the freshest, thickest slices also that we can make a delicious sandwich for ourselves. And if you want to take this joke maybe to a deeper level, I think it's relatable because it kind of suggests that it's okay to do whatever makes us happy as long as we're not really hurting anyone else and we should basically be able to do whatever we want, even when it comes to our bread. In other words, how often do we live by the motto, let my family, let my friends, they can have the small slices of bread. I'll take care of numero uno. I couldn't help but think of this, uh, actually, as I read through these verses in Luke 9, uh, preparing for today's service, because what we see here, what we see in these verses is Jesus Christ telling his disciples, telling everyone who will follow him, telling the world that to call him God means you are no longer looking out for numero uno. When you call Jesus Christ the Christ of God, in verse 20, your world, your priorities, what we think is right, what the world tells us is right, it all gets completely reoriented. And so to look closer at this, I want to focus on one of the phrases uh, in this morning's passage. Now, there's so much in these verses, uh, but the phrase I want to look at is found in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. So I want to dive into this in a few different points uh, this morning. First, what this means, what this even means to deny yourself. Second, why we so often hate the idea of denying ourselves. But finally, how uh, and perhaps why we can actually do this. What this means, why we hate it, and how we can do it. So what this means to deny yourself. Now I think context is critical as we jump into this. Uh, and what is so amazing that here in verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Other translations uh, will use a phrase like, if anyone wants to be my disciple, or if anyone wants to be my follower. Uh, but regardless of the translation, I think the point is clear. Jesus is speaking uh, to anyone who wants to join him, anyone who wants to follow him. If you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, this is what it looks like. And I find this amazing uh, because this is not the beginning of people following Christ. This is not even the beginning of the work of Jesus. Uh, earlier in this chapter, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has already assembled his group of disciples, his followers. And we're told that he gives them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. This is at the beginning of the chapter. Christ has already organized those who would come after him, and he grants them some pretty amazing power and authority. Uh, and then after that, we get the story of Jesus Christ feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And I bring all this up because all of this happens before we get to uh, today's verses in 18 to 27. So as I think about that, as I put this into context, I think we have to assume that as powerful and amazing as the stories are that preceded it, uh, I mean, imagine having the power to cure diseases or to witness someone feeding 5,000 people 
with barely any food. As amazing as these things are, these miracles and these experiences, these are not what it means solely to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What it means to follow Him, what it means to come after Him, what it means to call yourself a Christian, the very first thing that Jesus says is, you must deny yourself. Now, you might be saying, what does this matter? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not sure what you believe. And you might be saying, this is fine for you to figure out. I don't need to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and honestly, you might even be kind of having this reaction uh, if you do consider yourself a Christian. Uh, you might think that you have a good enough understanding of what that means to be a follower or to come after Christ. You come to church. Uh, maybe you volunteer. There's a number of ways uh, that this might manifest itself in your life. But I want you to consider who Jesus is talking to in this passage. His disciples, the disciples that Christ himself assembled, the disciples who have already uh, witnessed some pretty miraculous things. It's probably safe to say uh, that these guys thought they had a very, very good understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. And yet, Jesus turns to them, and to now a crowd that is likely forming around them, and he says, no, 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 no. You want to follow me? This is what it means. And it begins with denying yourself. So what does this actually mean then? Deny yourself. You know, it's a, a pretty harsh thing to say. I think if someone came up to you and said you need to deny yourself, uh, you might take it uh, a little harshly, uh, a little personally. But in reality, the translation that we have in front of us uh, is probably not harsh enough. The uh, original Greek used here actually is often used to mean repudiate or to disown or to reject. So Christ is saying to follow him might look like disowning or rejecting yourself. And most commentaries say the same thing. To deny yourself, to reject yourself uh, means basically the opposite of being self-centered or to look out for numero uno. It means you must say no to yourself, to your ambitions and your desires. And uh, often, and even more, it means saying no to that driving force behind those ambitions and desires. Jesus is saying all of these things just in verse 23, but we certainly can't look at these few words by themselves because he's not just saying deny yourself, right? He's saying when you deny yourself, when you say no to yourself, you are finding a new self to say yes to, a new self to affirm. We get that in the remaining verses. He says if you lose your life in this world, you will actually save it. Now let's bring this to 2019. Uh, and instead of looking at how we deny ourselves or how we lose our lives, how do you and I often try to save our lives? How do we grow our lives or affirm ourselves? I think it's safe to say that we grow our lives, we gain our lives by gaining things in this world, by growing things in this world. Maybe it's money, maybe it's a promotion, uh, maybe it's a relationship or some level of status, maybe it's the kind of car we drive. Whatever it is, we believe, and we are so often told that we can get richer, fuller lives by gaining tangible, palpable things in this world. We affirm ourselves by making ourselves happy, and we make ourselves happy by gaining things in this world. And it just continues to go around in that circle. 
And as we think about that, I think it's important also to, to note here that though Jesus might be using a harsh word, what he's saying is not self-hatred. He's not saying you need to literally lose your physical life and then you will somehow save it. He's not saying rejection of yourself only happens if you're constantly reminding yourself that you're worthless and you have no value. That's not the kind of rejection or loss or denial that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is getting much deeper than that. Jesus isn't talking about your physical life. He's talking about the central foundation of your life. He's talking about your identity. He's not merely talking about desires and ambitions. He's talking about the thing that makes you tick. The thing that is at the root of those desires and those ambitions and those goals and those hopes and all those dreams that we have. And I know this is a fast flyover of what this means, of what it means to deny yourself, but if that is what it means that we need to start rejecting and disowning and denying those things and the things, the thing that makes us tick, the thing that is central to our lives, I think the next point is pretty simple because I know that when I start talking about this, I kind of squirm inside and that's why we hate what this means. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, true character is how you act when nobody's around? I'm not sure where it ultimately originally uh, comes from, but I know that the great basketball coach John Wooden is on record saying something, something similar. He, he once said, the true test of a man's character is what he does when no one is watching. Now, if you've ever heard this or if you've ever said it, uh, you probably hold it in high regard. I certainly do myself. Uh, it's absolutely a great litmus test and I think a great bar to set for ourselves and those around us. But as I read through this passage in Luke 9, as I was getting ready for today, I kept thinking about this saying. It kept popping in my head and I kept thinking that it might not be this all-encompassing, end-all, be-all statement uh, that I used to think it was. The truer statement, uh, at least for me, from what I've experienced throughout my life, is that a true test of character is not only how you act when no one is watching, but a true test of character is how you act when everyone is watching. I think every time I have the privilege of preaching here at Grace, I uh, somehow talk about my time in radio. Uh, and as I thought about this idea of a true test of character, my mind definitely drifted to when I worked in radio. If I'm honest with you, I hated the idea that I had to deny myself or to say no to uh, the environment I was working in or the ambitions or the desires that were really driving my life. Uh, I hated that I had to deny that if I was going to be a true follower of Jesus if I was going to be what I thought it meant to be a good person, because honestly, it's just it was just easier to give in in the environment around me. It was easier to be apathetic, office gossip, laughing at jokes uh, I knew I shouldn't have, not speaking up to defend someone because it might have been awkward for me, uh, even stretching the truth on my resume at times. It's much easier to give in to those temptations, even justify them, than it is to deny the ambitions that are pushing you toward those temptations. Think about that. Another true test of character is how you act, what you do when everyone is watching, when the world is watching. You know, maybe it's easy to justify or diminish arrogance or pride uh, if your job makes those things valuable for success 
Maybe it's easy to justify or simplify uh, racist views or sexist views of a friend or a relative uh, or someone we admire because, you know, those things are byproducts of a different environment or a different generation. Maybe it's easy to justify wealth from New York City out to the East End because, honestly, how else can we live comfortably without trying to accumulate as much money as possible? Or politics. Everyone loves politics. Marks loves for me to talk about politics from the pulpit. I mentioned I used to work in radio. Uh, one radio station I worked at was a news and talk radio station, and it leaned much more to one side of the political aisle, but it didn't really matter which side that it leaned to. Uh, what I learned during that time uh, about political discourse, uh, about political fights, uh, was that nobody, left, center, right, nobody wants to applaud or congratulate the other side for doing something good. That was one of the most astonishing things I think I kind of grasped about politics. And also one of the things that wears me out the most about politics, and probably because I can see it myself. Uh, you can be on this side of the aisle, pointing, and fingers, pointing fingers and yelling at other people on this side, and man, you take joy when that other person fails, when they don't live up to who they say they are, when they don't follow through on their promises, when they misspeak, whatever it might be. But then almost worse, when the other side actually does come through and they live up to who they say they are, there's often not a sense of gratitude or respect. There's almost a sense of disappointment, as if we were really, really hoping that they would fail. And when they didn't, man, it's just too hard to swallow your pride. It's just too hard to deny who you are. It's easier so often to give in when your friends are watching, when social media is watching, when everyone is watching. Now maybe some of these examples hit home for you, maybe not, uh, but I'm guessing your mind maybe has drifted somewhere during all of this. And so I have the question to ask, and what is that thing for you? When I say thing, what are you living for? I mentioned the word identity earlier, and I think you know an easy way to think about that word is what makes you tick? What is that for you? What is it that if someone came through and said, I'm going to take this away from you, if someone said that, you would feel like your life would crumble. What is that? Or what is it in your life that's just easier to go with the flow of the world around you? Even if you have a little voice inside telling you not to. Maybe it's something you're struggling with that, that nobody else knows. Maybe it's something in the office. Maybe it's something at home. From everything I've experienced, it's often harder to try and exhibit true character and be honest about yourself when the world is watching. That's why I think at least partly we hate anyone telling us to deny those things in our lives that make our lives a little easier or that make us happy in our lives, that give us what we think is freedom. And yet that is what we're told here, what we're told by Jesus Christ himself. You must deny yourself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Remember, they've performed miracles themselves. They've seen Jesus Christ perform miracles. They, they're probably feeling pretty high and mighty about their calling. Probably feel pretty confident that they're disciples of Jesus Christ. 
And when Peter confesses who he believes Jesus to be, when he admits that Jesus Christ is the Christ of God, other translations will use the word Messiah, what's Jesus' next response? He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He will be killed. And He will be raised from the dead. And as if that's not shocking enough, as if hearing that your leader is going to be rejected and killed. As if that's not bad enough, he then says, if you want to follow me, you're going to be rejected too. If you're only concerned with saving your life, you will lose it. If you're only concerned with gaining the whole world for yourself, you will forfeit your very self. If you're ashamed of this Messiah, if you're ashamed of the Son of Man, then this Christ of God, He will be ashamed of you. Verse 26. I know this is heavy, but I think these are things that we have to work through. And not just for a few minutes on a Sunday morning, of course, but every day. And we can do this, I think, because of what we heard read to us by Lisa in Hebrews 6 earlier in our service. We have a sure and steadfast anchor in Jesus Christ. We have an encouragement that is unmatched by the things of this world. And it is forever unchangeable. It is offered to us because of Jesus Christ, because He has gone before us. The word used in the verses, in the last verse, is He has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That He has gone before us. That's why even when we grasp what it means to deny yourself, and when we're honest with the reality of why we might have such a problem with that statement, that's, that's how we can even begin to do this in the first place, because of who Jesus Christ is. And that's the final point this morning, how we can do this. But maybe even before we say that, uh, we have to ask the question, why? Why do we even want to do this in the first place? We've been focusing on the phrase, deny yourself, uh, and the other verses that, that follow that. But none of that really matters if verses 20 through 22 aren't true. Remember how we talked about all those things leading up to this morning's passage, the curing of diseases, the feeding of the 5,000. Before Jesus explains what it truly means to be his disciple, to come after him, he first asks his disciples, those who have decided to come after him, a seemingly simple question. Who do the crowds say I am? And you know, the answers that are given are pretty powerful. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, that great prophet that we read about in First and Second Kings. Uh, and others say, if not Elijah, he must be another prophet raised from the dead. But we, even with those answers, I think, Jesus is not satisfied. And so he rephrases the question and he places the emphasis on you. It's clear here, and not just in these verses, but also where the story is recorded uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark as well. But this is an emphatic you. Jesus is distinguishing this question from what the crowds or the world say He is, and He wants to know who you say He is. In other words, the answer to this question is not just about the world, but the answer is a personal answer as well. It's not a piece of knowledge you gain from sitting in a class learning who Christ is. It's not a report you receive and then you come to some conclusion based on all the data provided. But it is a personal answer 
And Jesus knows this. And so even in the midst of his community of a group of disciples, he makes the question about what you think. And as so often happens in stories with Jesus and his disciples, our boy Peter turns into the spokesperson. Peter answers this question succinctly and eloquently, and as I think as far as we're concerned, he answers it accurately. Who do I say that you are, Jesus? The Christ of God. God's Messiah. This is the first time that this uh, confession or this acknowledgement is made by another person uh, in the Gospel of Luke. This is the first time that one of God's people declaratively says, you, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. You are the Savior of God's people. And I think that's significant uh, because uh, it obviously comes after Jesus is born. I say that's significant because when we get to Christmas time, which we'll be here before we know it, it's already almost August. Uh, as we look toward the birth of Christ, we in this sanctuary, we all know who Jesus is. On this side of history, we know, uh, whether we believe it or not, but we know the story that, that Jesus Christ is born a baby, but that he's also the Son of God. We read often during Christmas time in Isaiah chapter 9 that this baby would one day be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And where we're at in 2019, we know all this. So when we celebrate the birth of Christ, we know that He is the mighty God, that He is the everlasting Father. And yet, here in Luke 9, in the first century, people are still figuring this out. This admission, this acknowledgement of who Jesus is, made by another person, it's not recorded in Luke's Gospel until right here, in this passage, in Luke chapter 9, something like 30 years after Jesus was born in that manger. Who do you say I am? The Christ of God. And then as Jesus Christ, he says that he will suffer many, many things. I think this answers the question why we even want to deny ourselves in the first place, why this is important. Because when we're told to deny ourselves, we're not... When we're told that what happens when we try to gain this world, when we try to save our own lives ourselves, we're not just told these things from a great teacher or from an incredible moral example, but we are told these things from the Son of God Himself, from God who came to this earth to be with you and me as a man, to experience this life with us, to take on the suffering and the rejection and the pain of this world. And so when we ask the question, why do we even care about denying ourselves in the first place, we can point to verses 23 through 26 and we can say with joy in our hearts, this is why. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is what you have to reckon with. Is what Peter says true? Is what Jesus says in verse 22 true? That's why we're concerned with this, because of who is saying this to us in the first place. Now, it's one thing to talk <clears throat> about denying ourselves, but it's a completely different thing to actually do it. Denying ourselves gets at the reality of where our identity is placed, where the foundation of our lives is rooted. 
We're never going to be able to deny ourselves or understand what life we are trying to save or understand what we are trying to gain in this world if we can't first be honest about what is central in our lives, what we are making our identity, what we are idolizing. I think that's the most practical way to begin to approach this entire idea of denying ourselves. So the, how, the question, how can we do this? I want you to reflect on that. Reflect on the questions that have been asked. What makes you tick? What is that thing in your life? What's central in your life? What is it that if someone came through right now and said, this disappears, that you would feel like your life would crumble? What is central in your life right now? And to help do that, to help with any type of reflection like that, I'd encourage you to spend some time in God's Word too. Reread this passage from Luke. Reread the words from Jesus. Uh, read this passage from Hebrews that points to this hope and this surety of, of what Christ has done for us. Walk through the bulletin. You know, the, the, the order of your service here is very intentional. And it's all rooted in God's Word. And it gives us our own rhythm for our daily lives of what it looks like to adore God to be honest with God through confession, to spend time reading God's Word. God's Word, that is at the core of finding out who we are, who our self is, what our identity is. And it's at the core of how we can begin to deny what might be replacing Him in our lives. It's been said by a number of people over the years that when you question the Bible, the Bible will turn around and question you. Thomas Merton was a, a monk in the 20th century, and he once said, when you ask, what is this book? When you look at the Bible and you ask, what is this book? You find that you are being asked, well, who is this that reads it? Now, I know I'm just scratching the surface on the practical side of this, but I hope it's a beginning to help us all understand who we are and who we can be through knowing the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. The love and grace that is available to us based on nothing we can achieve or nothing we can accomplish, but based on the, the, the end of verse 22, that God's Messiah, the Christ of God, the Son of Man, He conquers death when He is raised to life. That we are offered new life through Him. That, that this Christ of God completely denied Himself in order for us to gain His riches, His goodness, His righteousness. That's what we read together in our prayer of confession this morning. His blood is your peace. His death is your freedom. His Spirit is your power. And I think that's it for us. That answers any and every question we can ask. The whys, the hows, the whats. Whatever we want to ask. The reality that Jesus Christ conquers death through His death and resurrection, giving us life. And the reality that this is done and accomplished for us, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. That is what Christians place their hope and their trust in. The last verse of, tw uh, of today's passage, verse 27, I think is one of the most helpful statements found in all of Scripture as we talk about this. 
that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That there are some here who will not taste death. I'm always blown away when I read through this passage because it reminds me that no matter how hard I think denying myself is, no matter how hard or personal it gets when I start thinking about these ambitions and drives that really are at the center of my life, that if they disappeared, I would feel like my life would crumble. No matter how hard it is to start addressing those and being honest about that and to deny those things, if death can't shatter or change my relationship with Jesus Christ, if death can't change the reality of who He is, then nothing can. We sang it together this morning. Jesus rose and conquered the grave. That's the hope we have, the hope that we find in the birth and in the life, in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is this hope something you need? It's something I need. It's something I'm constantly reminded that I need. And this hope, it completely changes the way that we live on this earth. It should change us, right? It should compel us to no longer look out for numero uno, but instead to deny our earthly identities and save our lives by turning toward the life of Jesus Christ. This life, this love, this grace that is unchangeable and that is the forerunner in our lives that has gone before us. This love and this grace that will never leave us. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that You have given to us, God. We thank You for this chance to hear Your Word and read Your Word. Lord, we pray that we would leave this place, go into our homes, go into our workplaces, go into our families, our relationships, God, and that we would begin to deny ourselves, not for our own sake, but because of who You are, because of who You say You are, because of the life that You led, Lord, but more than that, because of the fact that You have conquered the worst thing that this world can throw at us, all so that we might taste eternal life with You. God, we praise You for this faithfulness and we praise You that it has been this way and it will forever be this way. We thank You for that. We lift all of this up to You. We pray it in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.